Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you again. As I return from a sabbatical, I've been greeted by many of you very warmly. It is good to see you again. The most humorous greeting was I was asked if I needed a tour of the building to see if I remembered where I was at. So I appreciated that. I did want to take just a few minutes and just express my gratitude for the sabbatical we are returning from. Um, in several areas, we just saw God's grace abundantly demonstrated through this choice, this service to me and my family. Um, we come back, I think just the word that sticks in my mind is gratitude. We're grateful for our church family. Though it wasn't a necessity, uh, many of you signed up to bring us meals in, in kindness. That was just very thoughtful and encouraging to me and my wife and my kids just Sensing your love and care for us, that was a great blessing. Um, I'm grateful for the church outside of this body. One of the things we did was visit other like-minded churches that we are praying for, we are encouraged by. I'm excited by what God is doing in other churches. As the gospel goes forth, as churches are growing to be more healthy, as we're linking arms with other bodies that want to honor and glorify our Savior Jesus Christ. I'm thankful as well for our church leaders. Um, this is the first sabbatical in our church history. And I know for some of you it might have seemed odd, but our chairman of the deacons and vice chairman really spearheaded this. This wasn't something that I was asking for, um, but they said, we think this would be helpful and encouraging, and we'd like you to do this. And, and it is, has been extremely so. Um, so I'm grateful for our church leadership and their kindness and thoughtfulness to me. We can expect that other of our pastors will do this in the future. It was helpful for me in giving rest. Um, we really felt like we were able to do that. We got to spend a lot of time together as a family, um, spending time around God's Word, spending time talking about the church, um, talking through what is different about the churches we visited, what we're thankful for about our church. Um, it was helpful for me in focusing on study. You'll see some of that in the message this morning. It was helpful for me in refreshment and coming back with greater energy and enthusiasm. I'm also renewed uh, by the time away in, in energy for doing the work that God's called us to. One of the things that we planned to do, I, it wasn't really on my schedule early on, but um, we went to a conference. Um, it was me, Pastor Jonathan, uh, Brad Sherman, and John McCarty, so our chairman and vice chairman, Four days spending looking at the church, um, looking at another church and seeing what they do. And overwhelmingly, we were, all four of us, encouraged that God over years, over the last five to eight years, has really helped grow our church into a healthy ministry where the Word of God is for, put forward, where God is glorified, where we are excited about advancing the mission and though we have many things to still work on and grow in, we can be excited that we are a family that is healthy and growing and getting healthier. And that isn't done by any man in his skill as a leader. That's done by God through his word, through his spirit. So we have much to be grateful for, much to look forward to. And I pray that you would be encouraged by giving this kind of a rest to your pastor um, I think it will be a benefit to you and you'll be able to see that. So go with me now to 1 Peter chapter 5. 
We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. We'll read verses 1 through 4. We'll do some context work back in chapter 4. But we continue our series and we focus now in Peter's instruction to shepherd God's flock. What resource has God provided His people as they face opposition and hardship in this life? We've talked about it in this series. We're paying attention in our world. Life is getting more complicated for Christians as we see our society devolve into greater and greater seeming madness and sin and self-worship. Christianity is becoming less and less favorable and even tolerable. So what resource has God provided His people as they face opposition and hardship in this life? The context of our text this morning fits into the message of the entire letter. Let's back up, read verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. God's Word says to us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter admonishes these believers facing suffering, hostility, pressure, opposition to stand firm in God's grace. That's the message of this letter. And how does God equip His people to do that? That's what our text addresses this morning. In His kindness and wisdom, Christ provides godly shepherds to lead His sheep, especially in times like this. Let's look at our text this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So, some versions translate that, Therefore, it follows up, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the main thrust. It's the command in the text. Shepherd the flock of God. They're not your sheep. They're His. Elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, don't do it for money, but eagerly. Not domineering, being authoritarian over those in your charge, but being examples, models, one to be imitated before the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this text together. Father, we come before you and every time we open the word, we recognize we need the help of your spirit who wrote this book 
to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. So God, do that again in our hearts. Help us to see what it is you're teaching us here in this passage. Help us to understand how it applies to our lives and help us to live more faithfully to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you remember that scene in John 21? This was the passage we looked at at Easter where beside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had been raised from the dead and his disciples were fishing and there Jesus meets with Peter. Peter had denied Christ and run away. He was grieved by his sin. He needed a word from his Savior, from his shepherd. Jesus came to restore him. I want to read John 21, verses 15 through 17, that conversation that Jesus has with Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus said to him, yes, Lord. Rather, Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, deeply wounded by this third question because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. When Peter faced the pressures to deny Christ, he gave in to them. And yet Christ continued to love and was willing to restore Peter. The good shepherd was caring for one of his own sheep. He restored Peter and recommissioned him with this same message that Peter is now passing on to the shepherds of God's flocks. In these different churches in seven different regions, do you hear the echo? Peter is saying the same thing. Tend, shepherd, pastor, God's people. The similarities in our text in John 21 are not accidental In our text this morning, we'll see God's intention to help His people endure by providing to them godly leaders, teachers of His Word to strengthen and encourage them. So this morning, we'll examine our text in four points. The church facing pressure, the author expressing humble authority, the elders receiving instruction, and the responsibility being explained. So first, the church facing pressure. We know that suffering is one of the most prominent themes in this letter. If you were reading carefully with me, you saw the word suffer repeated again and again in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4. There's this external pressure on God's people to give up, to give in, to let go, to conclude it's not worth it. Because if you have to suffer, it's not easy to keep going. Family recently read through an abridged version of Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the important lessons is that the life of a Christian is not a life of ease. The king has said there's a path to follow. And yet throughout that story, it's difficult for Pilgrim and other believers in the book not to be drawn away off the path. Oftentimes, it looks like this side thing, this pasture or something else happening over here would be more enjoyable 
And on the surface it is. But that's not the path. Pilgrim faces hardship after hardship and temptation after temptation. And yet all along the way, the king comes back and continues to provide him with those who will speak God's word to him. Those who will help restore him back to the path, back to God's will. Church family, God has provided you with godly leaders who are walking on this journey with you. That's what Peter wants you to know. That's what Peter wants you to be convinced you need. The Christian life is not Lone Ranger Christianity. He's acknowledging you need others to walk before you. They're leaders in that they're showing you the way. They're not leaders in that they're over you telling you what to do. They're helping you stay on the path. He provides them to function for you in a similar way as he functioned in Peter's life. This is a high and holy calling to be an under-shepherd. Your pastors and spiritual leaders in this church want to serve you, pray with you, share God's word with you, and walk with you through the ups and downs of life. And I want you to be very convinced from what Peter is saying that this is God's plan to help you endure. You see how important it is from this letter to submit yourself to mature spiritual leaders in a church. That's God's gift to you. I want you to know and understand how the church leaders here in your church are currently seeking to care for our church family. I'm not sure if I've ever fully shared or explained all of this. We've been working on this behind the scenes over the last several years. We've worked on structuring our care to know and respond better to the needs of our members. If you're in a life group, you have a leader who is helping provide care in your life. They have been charged to know you to know what's going on, to share those requests and needs with the pastors and the deacons. If you're in a community group or Sunday school class, you have another leader with whom we are coordinating to serve you and care for you. And at the beginning of each year in our first deacons meeting, we divide up the membership of our church into care groups and every meeting we pray together for a portion of our our membership. Every one of our deacons and pastors are assigned about 20 different members that they're regularly to be in contact with. So we know how to care for you. And every week in our staff meeting, your pastors are discussing the needs of our members and praying for another portion of our body. Can you see how prayer and sharing the load increases our capacity to serve and care for the body better? I was so encouraged, I got a letter just a few weeks ago from a member who discovered that those different levels of care are really helping encourage her on the way. She's facing a certain level of pressure that she's never faced before. And just seeing different people reaching out and paying attention and knowing her needs has been so helpful and encouraging to her. She even said, I believe, this shows me the love of God for me. I want you to know that your leaders are responsible to care for you as you face hardship in this life. I'm so grateful for how God is at work in the lives of those who are serving in the body, that it isn't just your leaders who are taking up this call. We're growing in our service to one another. 
our leaders, their heart and diligence in this ministry is often a rebuke to me. They're eager. They're busy. They're finding out what's happening and reporting things to me that I'm like, I I thought I knew what was going on, but certainly I can't in every corner of our ministry. If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, in, in your family life, with a work situation, God has provided leaders to help you, even just to pray with you, even just to listen to you. If you're wanting to grow and you don't know where to start, or you're wanting someone to help you learn how to read the Bible, that's happening all over our church, behind the scenes. Come find one of the pastors or the deacons and say, how how do I get involved in that? If you wish your church leaders knew you better, can I encourage you to take initiative and reach out? Reach out, invite them to coffee or lunch. Or say, could we talk? Now, while the context here tells us that part of the reason God provides His people with elders to shepherd them through difficulty, there's also a warning inherent here as well. Did you see that at the end of chapter 4? Verse 17 says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That hits another major theme in this letter, doesn't it? That God cares about how we live. As Christians, we're called to holiness, to be doing good works. The gospel is to be working itself inside out. It's supposed to be visible. We're to continue to be changed. And God will judge his own people. How we live matters. And part of what's happening here is Peter is placing that responsibility for growth in holiness on the leaders. God has provided godly shepherds in your life to help you fight your sin. This is God's strategy for your growth. If you're struggling with sin, you need the help of godly leaders. Don't avoid seeking that help because of your pride. What is your pride stealing from you if you would not seek the help God wants to provide you? Send a text, an email. Give a pastor or a deacon, a fellow member, a phone call. You see, this is why being part of a healthy church matters for your growth. God's people need God's help to walk the Christian life. And He intends for you to do that under the care and authority of His shepherds. Second, the author expresses humble authority. In verse 1, Peter describes himself with three different phrases. And I want you to see the encouragement that these are meant to be to these fellow elders who are themselves under a lot of pressure, have great responsibility. These titles are meant to be an encouragement to them. He calls himself a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of future glory. So notice that humility that Peter demonstrates in that first description. He doesn't use his most authoritative title. He could have said, I'm an apostle. In fact, I'm probably the lead apostle to the Jews. I've written two books of Scripture and am behind the Gospel of Mark. No, he says, I'm a fellow pastor. He's identifying himself in this work. This tells us that shepherds need encouragement from other shepherds. They need other believers to walk with them, 
other shepherds to shepherd their hearts, to admonish them and encourage them, even warn them and restore them like Peter was. Peter's well acquainted with this work in his life, and he wants these men to know that he too serves Christ and is serving them in this way. He says he's a witness of Christ's sufferings. It seems best to understand this to mean that Peter can accurately reflect the truths of the gospel. But I think even identifying Christ's sufferings, he's saying this is what it is to be a shepherd. Our Christ suffered. We will have to suffer as well. Peter's a reliable first-hand witness that Christ's sufferings has the power to save. Peter is also finally a partner in the future glory that will be all believers when Christ returns. In this letter, you see Peter never lets go of this future forward-looking vision. His Savior is coming again to make all things right, to vindicate His followers, to end their suffering, to complete their salvation. This is a great model for us to constantly remember we are not living for this life. We're on a path to the celestial city. And the king has called us to walk in his way. Though life is busy and filled with responsibilities, joys, concerns, we're to set our mind on things above. Number three, the elders receiving instruction. Let's go back to verse one and consider again who Peter is addressing. He says, I exhort or appeal, the word is urge. The King James would say beseech the elders among you. Now, who are the elders that Peter is referring to in this verse? Well, the word elder here clearly denotes an office of leadership in the church. And while the origins of the word for elder can be traced all the way back to the Old Testament, the elders of Israel, here it refers to spiritually mature men, pastors of these churches as the common phrase we would use today. Based on the titles we see in the text, Peter is exhorting the elders or pastors or overseers of these churches. I want you to note that all three of those terms are here in these verses. See, in verse 1, look down at your your Bible. In verse 1, there's the elders. What do they do? Verse 2, shepherd, that's the word for pastoring. And then that second phrase in verse 2, exercising oversight. That's an overseer. We see that word used explicitly in 1 Timothy 3, describing what an elder or overseer or pastor is to be like, his character. So when you see elder or overseer in the New Testament, it's appropriate to think that's a pastor. All these three terms are used interchangeably. They're used that way here, and we'll look at another passage in a moment. I want you to note their number. It's a plurality. It's not one pastor. I think it's fairly clear here that this passage affirms a plurality of elders in a single church. Though this letter is sent to churches in seven regions in Asia Minor, this verse is addressed to a specific group within each of those churches. This is even clear in several other passages, and I want you to see those so they'll be on the screen. Acts 14.23 What I want you to see is a plurality of elders in a single church. Several passages make this explicit. And when they had appointed elders, plural for them, in every 
church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Another text, Titus 1.5. This is Paul talking to Titus and telling him part of his job. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town. That's a single town. We're talking about a single church. As I directed you. How about James 5.14? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. See this again in Acts 20, 17. It won't be on your screen, but, but just listen. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, the single church. And he called the elders, plural, of that church, I think that's the best way to understand that, to come to him. Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, to that church at Philippi, with the overseers, there's that word overseers, it's plural, and deacons. So again, we still have a single church with plural elders. Now, I want you to think about the situation, and this is part of what we're thinking through and arguing from the Scriptures. When Paul tells Titus to put elders plural in a single church, or when Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 appoint elders in every church, I don't think we can safely say that means they're staff pastors like we have. We have plural elders, right? We have three pastors. What I'm arguing for is there are pastors who are paid and there are pastors who are unpaid. There are staff pastors and there are lay pastors. And together they shepherd the flock of God. I think that is the safest, the best, the most natural way to read these verses. Second, their titles. We've talked about this briefly, so I won't linger here, but elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. They're the same titles for the same office. We see this again in 1 Peter 5, but I want you to see it and hear it in Acts 20. Okay, verses 17 through 28. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders. So there's that same word we have in 1 Peter 5, 1, of the church to come. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. And now here's his instructions. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So we already have that metaphor of shepherding coming back in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's our second title. And now he uses the verb for shepherd, to care. That's the same verb in the Greek that's used in, chapter, in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So again, when we see those three terms in the Bible, we can say that means our pastors, our shepherds, the ones who are leading us. So for today, for us today, the point would be that God intends for his people to be led by a group, not a single CEO type pastor. A group of elders, pastors, overseers, and that if we follow the pattern of the New Testament, they would not all be staff pastors. I believe that there are men in this church body that are not on pastoral staff at this time who've been equipped by God to serve the body with their ability to handle the word. And having those men as among the elders would help our body be served more effectively. Now, how would a plurality of elders more effectively help lead our congregation? These aren't conclusive. 
These are benefits, uh, but I wouldn't say these are the reason we should do this. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But I just want you to hear the benefits. Um, Much of this comes from John MacArthur and another book by Ben Merkel. So a plurality of elders helps protect the church from error. God intends for faithful shepherds and overseers to help teach and guard his people from false teachers. Paul warns the Ephesian elders with great sobriety in Acts 29. He says, I know that after my departures, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So they'll come, attacks will come from the outside. But the next phrase says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There will be attacks from the inside. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is a sobering work. Titus 1.9, Paul tells Titus, a requirement for all elders is that they must not only be able to teach sound doctrine, so these need to be men who know the Bible well and are teaching it, and fruit is growing up around them, and they are lovingly serving the church with the word. But there's a second side. They're to defend it against false teachers as well. Verse 9 says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, that's positive, in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Second benefit, it helps provide wisdom from a multitude of counselors. So this is especially against a CEO, head pastor, he's the one who has all final authority type of a model. Proverbs 11, 14, 15, 22, 20, verse 18, and 24, 6 all emphasize and teach that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. We want to reflect that in the way that we lead. Pastors are sheep as well as being shepherds, and they need to be shepherded. Who shepherds the shepherd? In a plurality of elders among a congregation, the pastors lead together. They submit to one another. They're accountable to each other. They get helped when there's crisis in their life. Number three, it provides help and accountability in sharing the task of teaching, shepherding, and oversight. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul commands Timothy to invest in faithful men who will teach others also. The point here is not to gain a powerful voting block, but to raise up men who will gently and wisely lead and care for God's people through His Word. They have to be men of the Word, able to build up the body through an effective ministry of the Word. And here's the thing, we're not just interested in making our church healthier. As we raise up elders, we're eager to send them to other churches and see them grow for the glory of God. So this might be a painful thing as we see a man raised up and we say, you know what? It's best for you to go help another church for the advance of the kingdom. That would actually be a wonderful thing. Next, it provides stability in times of difficulty and transition. That really seems to be the point here for Peter in this passage as the church is facing external hostility. But we know this to be true in our own experience here as a church body, don't we? In our last pastoral transition, 
Some of you are here for that and some of you weren't. We face some very difficult and disunified days. Staff pastors or elders are sometimes called away to another ministry. Whether we agree with that or like it or not, but an incredible benefit to a church recognizing and raising up lay elders to stand with their staff pastors from among the congregation is the stability that they provide in a time such as that. Lastly, it produces a healthier church by raising up more gifted teachers of the Word. If we believe that the Word is what gives us life and causes growth, We want as many teachers who are faithfully teaching the word as possible, and we want to send them out to help other churches do the same. If we understand the descriptions we see of the New Testament churches, we understand what God calls elders, pastors, overseers to be, then we understand that having more men competent to lead from the authority of God's word, not from a title, is a very, very good thing. Godly men faithfully handing God's Handling God's word is his method for building up his people. That is his method to love them toward growth. God gives Moses a group of men so he doesn't have to lead alone. Jesus chooses 12 men by which he establishes the church and Christianity explodes outward from Jerusalem. Now on this point, I want to give some clarifications. Because I think when you are suggesting a change, there can be an inherent accusation that what we're doing is wrong or bad or failing. And that's not the case. What we're examining is, what does the Bible point us toward? So I want to give a couple of clarifications. First, in the New Testament, the Bible refers specifically to elders as an office of the church 19 times. It's the most commonly used word among the three for pastoring, for shepherding. It's used 19 times. So this doesn't include the times it refers to overseers of the church, approximately five more times, or the pastor. That's only used one time as a noun, two more times as a verb, like we just saw in Acts and in 1 Peter. Now, how many times does the New Testament refer to deacons? Did you know there's actually only two passages that specifically refer to the office of deacon? There's one more that perhaps is being referred to implicitly, Acts 6. The word deacon is not there, but it looks like we're seeing a deacon ministry described. They're referred to very briefly and without comment in Philippians 1.1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, the pastors, and deacons. And then their character qualifications are set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And we likely see how they function in Acts 6, as I mentioned. Now, you will notice there are no references to trustees in the Bible. Now, is that a major problem for us? Should we feel bad about that? Well, before I answer that, uh, let me read to you what Thomas Schreiner says in his commentary on 1 Peter 5, 1. He's making the case that it is normal for the New Testament church to have elders. The church or churches in Jerusalem had elders. According to Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in all the churches that they visited during their first missionary journey. 
when a contingent of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, they were called elders. The person who is sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church. The pastoral epistles show the elders again function in Ephesus and were to be appointed in Crete. Every piece of evidence we have shows that elders were widespread in the early church. And he helpfully summarizes, they are mentioned by different authors, Luke, Paul, Peter, and James. They stretch over a wide region of the Greco-Roman world, from Jerusalem, Palestine, the whole of Asia Minor here in 1 Peter, and in Crete. It is also most likely that elders functioned as a plurality in the church, since the term in the Bible is always plural. So I know for some of us this is probably challenging, since we've never been in a church that was led by a plurality of elders, including staff and lay elders. I've never been in one. But in my years in talking through this, reading about it, working through it, listening to others, we have all kinds of questions that come to our mind. I've heard the question, is this even Baptist? I I can give good explanations for that, and in time we'll consider that. But the more important question for us to ask ourselves at this moment, as we look at this text, is, is it biblical? That's what matters. Is this what the Bible describes? Is pastoral leadership in a congregational church by a plurality of elders biblical? I'm convinced we have to answer yes. So theologian Wayne Grudem concludes in discussing the differences on church government. This is an important question. He says we have to ask Why would we adopt as normal a pattern of church government which is found nowhere in the New Testament and reject a pattern found throughout? If the Bible describes church leadership in this way with elders and deacons being the only offices of the church, we're coming back to that question. Are we sinning by being governed by pastors, deacons, and trustees? Do we have an unbiblical church office being used? And my very clear answer in my conscience is to say no. No, that doesn't bother me at all. I say no because there are a lot of offices in the church that we have that aren't found in the Bible. There's no treasurer in the Bible. There's no Sunday school superintendent in the Bible. There's no even youth pastor in the Bible. So we have to make decisions how to shepherd our body. Clarification number one, there's no system of church government commanded in Scripture. So I want you to think about that very clearly. I'm arguing it is described and it seems to be most biblical, but it's not commanded. Benjamin Merkel comments, although some aspects of church government are clearly set forth in Scripture, teachings the responsibility of the elders, not the deacons, other aspects are less clear. As a result, at certain points, we must allow for some flexibility while acknowledging that our personal preferences should not be put on par with Scripture. It is necessary, therefore, that we approach the issue of church government with humility and with a teachable spirit. Pastor and author Phil Newton concurs with Merkel's assessment. He writes, the polity framework sketched in the New Testament does not give us every detail. Rather, it leaves some things to the wisdom of the local churches. 
And John Piper also articulates the mixed nature of contemporary biblical eldership. He says, church governments really is a mingling of biblical principle with practical, cultural, historical, and local dynamics. We need to be honest about that and not absolutize our little systems. Now, each of these men I've quoted is convinced of biblical eldership among a congregation. And yet we have to recognize the Bible is not explicit in commanding this or giving us all the details that we want. It does consistently describe a plurality of elders lovingly serving the church as they lead from the Word of God. And it consistently describes deacons lovingly modeling service in the church by working hard to allow the elders to focus on ministries of prayer and the Word. Second clarification, there is no perfect system of human government, especially even in a church. Working through these points with you, I want you to understand that I'm not saying that if we go through the careful, patient, challenging work of adjusting our model of church government that we'll come to a perfect system or that we'll have no problems when we arrive at adding lay elders. We may actually have more problems. This isn't a pragmatic argument. Yet our goals are not set by pragmatism. What works best? And they can't be set by tradition. What we're most comfortable with, familiar with, or comfortable with. Accustomed to, rather. Pastor and Bible teacher Alex Strauch makes this point. If you were to ask, for example, does marriage work? Many people would answer that it doesn't appear to be working in our society. So should we discard the institution of marriage? And look for something better? No. The marriage institution is God's will for the human race as revealed in the Bible. Now again, I want to be careful. There's much more explicit teaching on marriage than there is on how we design our church leadership. But the point is the same. In order to make marriage work, we must first believe it to be a biblical teaching and then be committed to making it work. Only then will marriage work. The same conditions hold true for implementing a biblical eldership. We must believe it is scriptural and be committed by God's help to making it work effectively. Last condition, we are not in a hurry. Almost eight years ago now, when I was in the candidating process, I let the search committee, I let our congregation know that I was biblically convinced that elder-led congregationalism was the most biblical form of church government. And that I would slowly lead the church in that direction. Slow indeed we've been. On purpose. On purpose. We've discussed this for several years with the current deacons. I've informed new members entering the church family that we are headed this way. We are thinking through this. And yet I want to continue to lead with patience. It took me, it took our current leaders some time and study to be convinced that it was biblical it will likely take you some time as well. And that's what I would ask you. If you're really struggling in your spirit this morning saying, what are, what are we doing? I would just ask you to consider what Scripture says. Be humble and be teachable. What does Scripture say? My plan is to continue to preach the text right in front of us. This passage providentially was right in our path. The very next text that I would deal with right after my sabbatical while I'm studying this issue. That's not an accident. We'll consider 
continue to consider what Scripture says about this subject, specifically about how shepherds are to shepherd. The next book I plan to preach through will probably be Titus, and then we'll probably go after that to 2 Samuel. I'm also planning to include some more specific teaching on church government. I think we need to know the distinctions. That was very helpful for me to read four different views on church government. How have people thought through this? What are the differences? So we'll talk about that on Sunday evenings and give you a chance to ask questions and hopefully receive helpful answers. So again, we're not in a hurry. We need to be convinced that this is the most biblical model. I'm going to postpone point four as we come to conclude this passage this morning. Here's the conclusion that I would lead you to. Ask God to give us, as a church family, wisdom and discernment as we seek to follow His Word and direction for the leadership of our church family. You need to be involved by searching the Scriptures, by praying, by having conversations with the current leaders and say, okay, help me, I'm I'm not seeing this. Can we look at this together? We want to be biblically faithful as we seek to understand how church leadership is described all over the New Testament. I want you to be encouraged That if God has spoken about it, even if it's hard for us to obey, He will honor our obedience through the difficulty. I want to encourage you to study God's Word on this issue. It would be very unwise and even arrogant to offer an opinion without looking at the Word. We cannot argue, well, that's not my tradition. That's not how God's people are to consider an issue. We look at the word. It is the authority in the room, not me or any other leader. The pastors and deacons would be eager and glad to meet you for a coffee or a lunch with you as you consider, as we consider how God is directing our steps. I have tons of resources. There are some on that back table. The one I've provided you that I would be most interested in you taking is just a listing of the passages that talk about deacons and the passages that talk about elders. I've given different books that are in the book rack that are on that table that you can take. So please stop back by there and begin searching the scriptures for yourself. And finally, and most importantly, would you pray for your spiritual leaders here in our church? We need your prayers. One of the things that are in this verse, verse 2, is shepherd the flock of God among you. My greatest concern in pastoring is not saying we've got to get to this system. Rather, that verse tells me my greatest concern has to be to pastor you, where you're at. How do I lead us toward a more faithful biblical position without being harsh or domineering or authoritarian? We must be convinced and be led by Scripture. So your pastors want to carefully and responsibly shepherd the flock of God among us. And we know we can't accomplish that in our own strength. So pray. God cares for his people. He's not silent on this issue. We know he cares. He loves the church. Christ spilled his blood for us, for this local body, for the church. He will certainly continue to care and guide us as we seek to honor and obey his word. Let's pray.
Gracious God in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your care of us. We're thankful for your wise design of how we are to grow. The way you've designed us to grow, according to 1 Peter 5, even when we're facing pressure, especially when we're facing hostility, is to lean into the body, to lean into the leaders that we've been given. They're commanded to shepherd us. So, Father, help those of us who are leaders to do that well with grace and gentleness and humility, the humility of our great shepherd. And, Lord, help your people to continue to desire to be led by the word, first and foremost and above all. We want to be a word-dominated church that seeks to honor and glorify you in all that we do, in all that we say. So help us to do what we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.